0: Welcome to Rambling Rogues, the podcast for indie authors.
1: But first, a message from our sponsors. It's us, Rogue Animal Books. Yeah, for those of you that don't know, Rogue Animal is a resource for writers. Uh, we've got an ebook store where you can sell with us. Um, but not only that, we've also filled our site with different resources. Uh, we're going to be adding tutorials, information, podcasts by other people as well. So... Um, yeah, head, head over to roguanimalbooks.com now and you can learn more about us. Uh, and also head to our Facebook group, Rogue Readers. So, Joe. Michael? Um, The first episode of the podcast, it's, it's going to be a little bit basic, isn't it? Um, yeah. For this one, uh, they're probably all going to be a bit basic, to be honest. Probably. But uh, this one is going to be more basic because uh, it's just a prototype, we're just trying to get feel for how everything's going to work, Yeah. Um, but basically the idea of this is to bring something that's going to be useful for authors each week and have a different guest on. Um, this week we're, the topic we're going to be talking about is what makes a, sco- a story scary, and um, mm-hmm. we're going to have special guest uh, Chris Newton, who is a horror author, to talk about that with us. Uh, because this is a prototype, we're not doing the book review this week, um, but if you want to learn how you can send your work in to be reviewed, just... Uh, Stick around to the end, and we'll we'll leave more information about that later on. So, uh, yeah. So, Joe, uh, let's give our writing tips. Shall we? Yeah. So, something that it's something that I've certainly learnt myself this this month is uh, is that it can be very difficult to get things on the page. Uh, mm-hmm. And something that's really helped me is just even if you have an idea and you don't know where it's going to go, just just keep at it because eventually. Uh, the path will sort of clear and you'll you'll get an idea of where, where things are going. Uh so that's really something that I've learnt. Um yeah just to keep keep at it you know. For people who do graphic novels,
0: my tip for this month when you're structuring the writing for the manga or graphic novel, one thing to be aware of is is knowing when to put a lot of writing and when to put a shorter amount of writing. Or even on some pages, you can just put a few words and have it... It makes it more powerful, the language. So, yeah, just something to be aware of when Um, you're writing it and when you're um, actually adding the words onto the page.
1: Yeah, and I think that's something particularly that, that novel authors need to be aware of because I know there's a lot of people who are interested in doing graphic novels but they've not done that style before and they treat it too much like writing a novel so yeah. they'll put too much on there. Mm. But it's it's more about doing what you can with a smaller yeah. amount of words. And
0: it? if you're planning to write a graphic novel or a children's book or anything like that, um, pick up a few books of that type, of that genre, and give them a read and just see how they're
1: structured and see how they're written. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the only way to be a better writer or anything, yeah. is just reading more and, and, yeah, definitely learning about the different genres and different kinds of styles that people people uh, do within graphic novels. Yeah. Um, so, uh, what are we reading uh, this month? Um, so, I set myself a challenge um, this year, and it's a bit cliched, but I wanted to read a different book every month. Uh, and the first month, uh, the first book uh, that I read this year was uh, something that Chris, who's going to be on with us later, uh, recommended to me, which is the Diary of uh, Adrian Mole, uh, yeah. which is all about a teenager growing up in the eighties, and it's his his diary essentially, and it's all about right. his sort of perspective of of life growing up. It's sort of it's it's really it's really well written and quite funny, so it's yeah. definitely something to um, to check out. Yeah, and I've been reading the Junji Ito books,
0: um, especially the. User Mackie. it's called and it's horror it actually relates to what we're going to be talking about today because it's a horror it's a horror manga horror graphic novel and it's I'll say it's the best one out there especially it made me think of writing differently it really gave me a new perspective on how you can actually write a story so I'll suggest any writer to read Mom. that book um yeah,
1: so that's my Yeah. Uh great, yeah. Um yeah, and also that, that Uzumaki thing you were talking about, uh is, is something you've been going on at me to read for ages, and that's probably gonna be one of my monthly books this year. So um Yeah,
0: definitely, because it's uh it's a story that will it can really affect how you write
1: yourself. Mm. It's yeah, it's yeah, powerful. It's pow- it goes, powerful. Well, we're gonna story. talk about this later, but from my understanding of it it's the idea of making something that it's quite normal into something quite terrifying, and that yeah, a big part of horror. But we'll get into that yes. later. Yes. Um, so uh, yeah, we'll we'll jump in uh, into our interview now. So we're really pleased to be joined by uh, Chris Newton. Maybe just start off with maybe just introduce yourself a little bit and uh, talk about yourself as your your background as an author and um, and your interest towards sort of horror.
2: Yeah. Hi. Well, thank you for having me. First of all, it's a pleasure. Um, I, I don't. I'm a member of the Rogue Animal Group. I've probably interacted with some of you before. And um, last year, Michael and I talked about my most recent book, The Filed Witch, um, a kind of folk horror. Uh, but yeah, I do a bit of everything: a bit of writing, a bit of music, a bit of a bit of podcasting. And uh, yeah, my my friend Mark Charles and I co-host uh, a monthly podcast called A Book at Breakfast where we talk about all manner of different books but my real uh passion is for spooky books so when you said you wanted to talk about horror i was i was so there
1: i mean when, when we said we were going to do a horror podcast to be honest i mean it was pretty much with you in mind i it seemed like the perfect first sort of <laughs> to test the waters and i really I, I,
2: I really i really appreciate that <laughs>
1: yeah (laughs) and um as i mean you're i I mean you've got sort of three podcasts on the go at this point haven't you so also you seem like it was a a good person to have as a sort of professional to uh, kick things off.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I said uh, book of breakfast is is the regular one, but uh, last year right. I actually started now this is this is niche. I'm a big fan of uh, the horror franchise Phantasm, which the original was a sort of low budget 70s sci-fi horror, and they continued to make them right up until two thousand and sixteen. And I'm such a diehard that um, I had to scratch a lifelong itch and I bit the bullet and started a phantasm podcast. <laughs> called Morningside FM uh, which yeah uh, there'll be a second series of this summer so if you like um, overly uh, analytical discussions about low-budget 70s horror check out Morningside FM (laughs) (laughs) yeah or if you 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 have a more of a literary inclination do check out a book at breakfast about Frankenstein and uh, this April, we've got a, an episode coming out uh, coming up on "The Devil Rides Out" by Dennis Wheatley. So there's there's always some spooky stuff going on. And I suppose so, I should plug Safety Pin as well. <laughs> My friend Peter Capen yes, and I yeah. are involved in an indie publishing collective, and we do spooky books. Some of which I've written, and co-written. Others are written by friends of mine. That's Safety Pin Publishing. But yeah, get get the shameless plug out of the way to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. I guess we'll just kick, kick it off. So what, what makes a story
1: terrifying? I realise it's that's quite a broad question, but we'll dig um, we'll, we'll, we'll more into it in more depth later. But It is a broad question. It's a very good question.
2: Yeah, uh, possibly, I suppose this will keep coming back to this because ultimately, you know, fear is so subjective that um, just because one person is frightened of clowns, a clown story will be frightening to everybody. And of course, the obvious killer clown example that people see the is from Stephen King's It. Uh, and I'm not a big fan of the film adaptation, I have to say. I know I'm probably in the minority there, but I feel like with the, the clown in those films, they've made it look like a quote-unquote scary clown, like a mask you'd buy in a pound shop on the run-up to Halloween. Whereas I think it's more... You have to kind of give a sense of the uncanny, I think. That's the real, uh, and I'm just, I've, I've got a copy of Stephen King's novel just to hand. I really wanted to just just read this very brief passage from it. Uh, Pennywise's first appearance, when of course everyone's seen the film, everyone knows the paper boat floating down the road into the train. And then <sighs> Georgie blinked and looked again. He could barely credit what he saw. It was like something from a made up story or a movie where you know the animals will talk and dance. If he'd been 10 years older he would not have believed what he was seeing but he was not 16 he was six there was a clown in the storm drain the light in there was far from good but it was good enough so that george denver could be sure of what he was seeing it was a clown like in the circus on tv in fact he looked like a cross between bozo and clara bell who talked by honking, or was it her, horn, on Howdy Doody Saturday mornings. Buffalo Bob was just about the only one who could understand Clara Bell, and that always cracked George up. The face of the clown in the storm drain was white, and there were funny tufts of red hair on either side of his bald head, and there was a big clown smile painted over his mouth. If George had been inhabiting a year later, he would surely have thought of Ronald McDonald before Bozo or Clarabelle. The clown held a bunch of balloons, all colours, like gorgeous ripe fruit in one hand. And what I love about that passage is that the clown... Is not described as being frightening in terms of having a monstrous you know he's described as looking like an ordinary clown that a child is familiar with from tv but it's the it's the unsettlingness of like why is it in the storm drain and that it doesn't really kind of it's so matter of fact that there was a clown in the storm drain because it, it upsets you instantly because that shouldn't be and the idea that it's not and he's saying that you know if he were older he would he would have the sense not to believe it because that couldn't possibly be true. And yet it is. And I think the character's perception is a huge part of it too, you know? And I think it doesn't matter what we're seeing because I say, because fear is so subjective, but we have to believe that the character is terrified or in this instance, believe that the character is in severe danger and it, enough for you to, to root for them or to worry about them. And I think a lot of great examples of kind of horror writing or fear, really, you know, aren't necessarily in what you might call horror novels. And I think one of the best examples, and Mark and I talked about this on A Book at Breakfast, um, is the concept of Room 101 in 1984. This idea that the thing that you fear the most is behind the door of Room 101. And that's, you know, the oldest trick in the book when it comes to writing scary things. You introduce a locked door or a sealed box and you say the thing you fear the most is inside here and then the reader or the viewer or the listener automatically projects their own nightmares onto it and I think that's sometimes the best way
1: that's what you were saying as well about the um the the film adaptation and them trying to make the the clown look specifically scary as scary as possible how do you feel about the two different sort of adaptations
2: I I I think the 90s series is fantastic and Tim Curry as Pennywise is terrifying literally the stuff of nightmares
1: um, I was going to preface it by saying I haven't actually seen the 90s I've seen clips of it but I've not seen the film I, the, the, the show, I, I assumed it was a film um which uh, so it's actually a series is it
2: it's actually a, uh, I think it's technically a series because it was it was like two very long episodes or maybe not I don't know it was on TV two bar right. or three, I don't know yeah but it was on, it was made for TV yeah. it wasn't a movie movie yeah, Tim Curry's portrayal is infinitely more terrifying and infinitely better. Um, I think so many people have uh, had a, a lifelong chlorophobia just from seeing that series when they were when they were too young, <laughs> or indeed just generally. Um and I think part of it is that, you know, he isn't playing it as a as a seri monster. He just is inherently evil. He looks like something that would turn up at a children's birthday. I think that's what makes it so so terrifying. Again, it's that sense of the uncanny. Something being where it shouldn't or acting in a slightly off way. You know, that's... Um, I don't know, maybe it's because we're, we're fundamentally sort of pack animals. Uh, and there's that idea that if, some, if one of us is behaving oddly, that uh, there's a threat to the, <laughs> the pack or the herd, whatever you want to call it. I, I don't know. There is there's some of that. I, I do. One thing I like about
0: the new newer films is the visual effects in it, I I do like some of the the scenes Mm -hmm. but definitely the old one, the older version yeah, it's definitely more scary but I don't actually like the second part of it, I've never liked the second part because there's that big monster in the second part I've always just found it a bit silly and not very scary at all with how they did that yeah, the yeah, first part's always been scariest to me. Well, so. for me,
2: the heart of of the story, you know, going back to the whole, is that idea that they're 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 adults now and they keep being on back to the, the this trauma from their childhood, and it kind of works that that being slightly displaced in time forwards. One thing that the '90s series did, and I think, it was a bold idea for the adaptation to do. You know the child the childhood part and then the adult part, but for me, I agree that it didn't really work. not to, there were great performances in there. It was a well made film, but ultimately i didn't find it scary, and that's what we're yeah. here to talk about. <laughs>
0: yeah, so what makes a story lose its fear factor?
2: I think we've kind of just touched on this in a sense um, it, I think it's when the author you can tell they're trying to make something scary and that Uh, is usually when they're describing something in great detail that frightens them and i I think you know if you're arachnophobic for example and they're describing in great detail spiders scuttling all over someone's body um yeah that's going to get you but it won't get everyone and i think the key you know you can focus on those details but it has to be about character and it has to be about uh, emotion and one of one of my favorite uh bits in in a, in a novel and again you could argue about whether or not this is horror because i guess technically it's a, it could be classed as a crime novel uh but that's hannibal by thomas harris and probably more people have seen the film uh, than have read the book and there's a scene basically the, there's a there's a detective uh in florence who has realized that this this man who calls himself dr fell is in fact Hannibal Lecter and he's trying to officially identify him and to do this he needs to get uh, a fingerprint so in the he hires a pickpocket to make like he's going for his wallet so that the guy will grab his wrist and he's wearing a bracelet and they get a fingerprint and that scene is in the book but what isn't in the book is what happens immediately before that when he breaks this uh, another pickpocket uh, a woman called Romula I think her name is she's in prison and her baby's in care And he basically comes to her and says, I'll get you out of prison and reunite you with your baby. If you do this one job for me, I want you to go and steal this guy's wallet and let him grab your hand when he does it. And in doing so we'll get his fingerprint and identify him. And part of her con, because she was a pickpocket is that she has a fake wooden arm there and she has a baby strapped to her chest so that they think that she's got her arm around a baby, but it's a prosthetic arm. And actually her real arm is in their pocket in their wallet so she walks up to dr fell to do this con and uh and then freezes and just says oh, i apologize i apologize uh, and runs off and when the when the detective teases you we know, what the hell why didn't you do it and she just said that man is the devil and then she she rushes into a chair because because he's looking at her baby she sort of throws into the font and starts washing its eyes with holy water because she just thinks sorry because, not because he's because the baby has seen this face this man who that she just is convinced is ultimate evil and it's so well done because he doesn't try to describe really what he looked like the look he gave her and he said all about her and her abject terror and I think that's that's how it's done and it's such a, an underrated a uh, little bit horror writing from another way you know a fairly well-known story but um, it's back to the room 101 thing it's you know if the character is in an absolute terror i i guess it has to be quite sort of visceral in that sense and very emotionally driven but yeah to, to go back to the question when does it fail it's when you it's when you tell the audio, the reader why it's scary you know let them figure it out for themselves i think
1: yeah definitely I, I think you definitely need to be in the shoes don't you of the character it needs to be you need to feel that you're you're them pretty much don't you when you're reading it and and believe that yes. you're in that, that position um so Absolutely. going back a little, going back a little bit um what was the first time that you got scared reading a story that you felt scared
2: uh, that's a difficult one um, because th- I don't quite remember uh, because I think I was just chatting to someone before we started this, this conversation about things at Little and we were talking about it. a lot of it was kind of word of mouth stuff um, you know we, we talk about things like uh, the Enfield Poltergeist or Baldy Rectory or more locally Chingle Hall and it really was those kind of um, urban legend local ghost story you know friend of a friend kind of stories that would really kind of get under my skin uh but for me it was kind of a macabre itch that I always wanted to scratch so for me kind of reading spooky stories was a way of kind of delving into what was becoming an obsession so it was more kind of a delight than uh, than than actually being scared really and i liked kind of there was a, a poetry collection i had called never say boo to a ghost and other haunting rhymes full of poems about witches and werewolves and vampires i knew off by heart and just anything yeah we used to play it every year so anything dracula i was obsessed with i had a a kid's book called um the vampire master about uh a new teacher at a boarding school called Mr. A. Cullard. Now, I won't spoil the end of who he turned out to be. Um, and there was another book, bit, uh, My Bitter is a Vampire and My Babysitter Has Fangs, all these things. It was a kind of just like morbid glee, I guess that, and they were all sort of kids' books. And these are kids' books too, but a proper book I read that was scary, was Welcome to Dead House by R.L. Stein, which is the first Goosebumps book. I mean, that was a massive, they were a gateway drug for me to eventually, you know, reading Dracula and Frankenstein and, uh, you know, the curious case of uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and all the classics. So, yeah. It,
1: yeah, I was, I was trying to think when I was thinking about this question, what, what, what the, uh, the answer would be for me. Um, and it's really, like, like you, it's mm. quite difficult remember but um the two answers uh that, that came into my mind neither were specifically horror stories one was uh the fellowship of the ring and the knife in the dark section of that i remember that really giving me nightmares um the, the way that the uh the black riders were described as i, I can't I mm. know, obviously i can't remember the exact uh wording of it now but when they emerge out of the darkness um, I, I remember that just horrifying me <laughs> when uh when i read that originally um and the other one yeah. was uh, was uh spooks apprentice um and the which is a story uh mm-hmm. set in our part of the world um and there's a section of that story where the main character is running from a witch uh and he's not sure you know he's he's got to get back to his his home where he's safe and and there's I remember that as that especially um, sort of affecting me as well um and yes. i guess in in both scenarios, it's the idea of, of, of something sort of inescapable following you. And, and I think that, that had quite enough. those sort of topics seem to have quite an effect on me growing up.
0: <laughs> so um, mine, um, it would be Yuzumaki. It's a manga by an uh, author called Junji Ito. And it's the way it's written that got me, it's... Not like anything I'd read previously, so it, it was written in a way that the characters in it they didn't matter. It was what was going on in the world that's what actually mattered and it, it was the sense that you just watched over these the, these characters' journeys
1: so from what i've heard about that the idea of that story is, is that the is it that the circle, the, the idea that the, the entire town is being driven mad by the it's circle?
0: Do, which I, I think it's really interesting. It, to do with obsession, that's what mm. it's to do with. That's the, the full theme of it. Mm. And basically people in this town, in this village, start to become obsessed with a spiral. Everyone starts to become obsessed with it until they gradually start turning into spirals and seeing spirals and everything just goes weird and strange and it's almost like Silent Hill, if you see that, I mean, like it just goes worse and turns darker. Mm.
2: Wow. That sounds horrific. I've not not read that. I love the sound of it. It sounds kind of Lovecraftian. I think that's what he did so well with that sense of just like Mm. completely knowable intangible madness that you could look at something and it would just drive you insane.
0: Yeah, it, it's brilliant. It really, it really impacted the way I like thought about writing horror because I, I, I love mm. writing horror, so it really impacted how I approach it. Uh,
1: and it, and it brings us uh, something we're going to talk about a bit more later, I think. But the idea of making something that's extremely normal into something quite horrifying—that's sort of Central for yeah.
0: that, isn't it? That that's it, yeah, and uh, yeah, just creating something that you won't think of being
1: scary and making it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, Chris, you just mentioned um, Lovecraft. Um, there seems to be mm. a real contrast uh, today between between classic horror, such as Lovecraft, and and, and modern horror. Um, how do you think the approach has changed?
2: Um, I'm not convinced that it has really I think that it's such horror is such an umbrella term Um, and began as a derogatory term you know it's something that I think it was something that film censors uh, coined you know as in like those horror films that would get an x rating Um, whereas certainly people writing novels that we might now call horror never would have thought of them as that and people making you know christopher lee hated the term people making the hammer horror they were making i don't know, gothic films or even fantasy films that they thought of them as or even sort of because there's a sort of fairy tale aspect to them uh and they saw horror as a negative thing so it's interesting that everything's kind of united now under that banner and i i embrace it i think it's great you know it's it just it is what it is so many things like like the Quakers, you know, so many uh, um, labels began as insults, but were just kind of embraced eventually. And what's interesting about Lovecraft, kind of like with Shelley, they did so much for the horror genre, um, but also for science fiction. And there, you know, there's so much that comes from both of them. But at the same time, we now have like sci-fi horror as as a, as a as a genre of its own. Uh, in terms of the polarization, I suppose now there's a lot of um, what frustrates me in in literature, there's a lot of there are sort of crime novels that flirt with the supernatural um, and will hint at something ghostly but never quite deliver. And I like a bit of ambiguity. I thought Pine by Francis Toon was very good about that because there's I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't read it, but um, there's a great sense of ambiguity uh, as as to what's going on in that and I really respect that because I think sometimes, if something leaves you with questions that they can linger and they can haunt you. But other authors who I won't name, but they kind of, they dress things up with kind of Gothic imagery or even ghostly paranormal imagery, but never quite fulfill it because they want to play it safe because crime thrillers are are such a, you know, a successful uh, uh, genre. that for, And in cinema, it seems to be very split between what mark commode brilliantly calls the quiet quiet bang horror films things like unduring and the nundering and all the annabelle and that all leaves me cold i'm afraid to say and then there's the other kind of very arias stuff like hereditary and midsommar uh, And oh, i i like something that's in the middle i like something that's kind of camp and knows that it is but but where the characters take the story incredibly seriously like the filmmakers can have fun but you need that sort of christopher lee peter cushing type person or even like someone like donald pleasance in in halloween i think if you're adapting a novel you need to have that i don't know that 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 sense and i think like i think it's very sweet you talk about the hammer dracula films that christopher lee would have a copy of Bram Stoker's Dracula in his pocket and would shout at people if they were getting it wrong <laughs> and tell them to take it seriously. And I love that. I love that dedication. Um, and I think like right now you've got someone like Mike Flanagan who's done some very successful Stephen King adaptations, uh, like Dr. Sleep, uh, Gerald's Game, uh, and he, I don't know if you've seen the the TV series Midnight Mass. Uh, that's... that's- pretty good as as modern horror things go so and he seems to yeah he's very good at adapting novels for films which is not an easy task
1: I I think something I mean I don't as you know I don't read a huge amount of horror um but something I've sort of noticed in in terms of a modern horror film uh, is that there seems to be a sort of a lot of leaning on sort of the jump scare as being the sort of almost the main way of, of scaring people and that in a way, takes away some of the, certainly for me, the the fear aspect. Yeah,
0: I don't think jump-scaring is scary, though. I don't think you can really call it, call it that. It's just a reaction from your body, isn't it? There's something jumping you. So.
2: A great jump-scare can be wonderful if it's well done, but it, you can't rely on that. That can't be the only thing you have in the bank. You need a story. Um, and that's what, I, what really frustrates me. I remember reading an article quite recently about how the conjuring had been and they they used the term scientifically proven to be the scariest film ever made um and they'd you know in inverted commas proven this by hooking people to heart monitors while they watched it now if you're watching a film for the first time and it's all dark and quiet and then something goes bang of course you're gonna have a reaction to that you know if you're a living breathing human being with a pulse um but do you lie awake at 3 a.m Still thinking about that thing that went bang. No, of course you don't. But something like the Blair Witch Project. There are no jump scares in the Blair Witch Project. But I saw that in 1999 at the cinema when it came out, and I haven't stopped thinking about the ending since. It's still in my head, haunting. <laughs> um, and and some, but then but you know, there's a great jump scare in. Um, I almost feel like this is vaguely spoilery, just to say there is a jump scare in it. But uh, a film that came out a couple of years ago called Saint Maud. And that was one of, it was the only film I got to see at the cinema in 2020 when there was a brief period in summer where they opened cinemas and you had to sit, you know, five seats apart from everybody. And the the only time in my life I've done the thing you see in films and on TV where I jumped and threw my popcorn in the air and it went everywhere. And (laughs) I've never had that reaction to anything before. But that, and I, you know it's one of the best jump scares ever because what happened was a so unexpected and b so terrifying. And yet at the same time it had earned it, you know, it it wasn't just something went bang. It was the whole scenario was so upsetting and unsettling. And there was so much tension that had already been built. It really, it earned that jump scare.
1: You said that you didn't think there was a huge difference between, um, between, uh, the, the classic approach and the modern approach, but do you think there is any uh, appeal in that style, that Lovecraftian style, uh, to into, in, in, into a modern audience?
2: Um, it depends what you mean by, by classic, really. Um, I think in terms of the, the, the traditional ghost story, um, I think there is still a, a massive appeal for that. Uh, I think only just this Christmas we had um, mark gates's adaptation of uh, count magnus uh, by M.R. james mm-hmm. um and last year he did the Mezzo tint and uh, and there's um there's a, a guy called adam robinson who has a, a sort of who tours with a thing called the book of darkness and light and they do sort of uh, ghost stories as theater uh and you know they sell out shows and people love it and sometimes they do an adaptation of something like A Christmas Carol, but more often than not, it's original stories. And I think people people love ghost stories, both new in terms of the stuff that we're getting for, you know, Ghost Story at Christmas. Uh, sorry, both in terms of classic adaptations of classics, uh, like the Ghost Story for Christmas stuff, or, or new interactive experiences. Uh, you know, you go to any... Any Waterstones, and it's all there. You know, mr James uh, and Edgar Allan Poe. Lovecraft's a weird one because he was a horrible racist, and I think that aspect of it, obviously, a lot of his stories are dated in that sense. I say dated, like it was okay then. Some of the stuff he said, and it wasn't even okay then. But, um uh, but even the style, I think, is is quite old-fashioned. But I don't know. Some people set such a trend that everything that comes after is, you know lovecraftian or jamesian or whatever um and in in a strange way but then recently on tv we've had an adaptation of lovecraft country uh which is an adaptation of a book and i've forgotten the name of the author but i've got it on the floor so i'm just gonna slide over (laughs) matt that was his name god it. Um, uh, I haven't actually seen the HBO series, but the, but the book was fantastic. But again, it kind of and it's 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 uncanny and it's it's weird. But I would say it leans more to the sort of sci-fi horror element and things like the city we became by N.K. Jemisin. Again, takes that Lovecraftian mythos in a different direction, the more inclusive direction. But it's more sort of sci-fi because in terms of you know, whilst we're getting these great theatre productions and. These great TV and film adaptations of classic ghost stories. In terms of what people are writing now, are people writing classic ghost stories or classic horror? In and again, it's that's a very broad term. It depends how you define classic. But I, you know, I love Mary Shelley. I love Bram Stoker. <laughs> um, I, I love Edgar, Edgar Allan Poe. And nobody writes like them anymore. And maybe I don't know. Maybe. People want those airport reads, but I miss I miss beautiful language. And I'm going to, just, if you'll let me be self-indulgent for a minute, because I don't know, I bookmarked this. I'm not even sure in relation to which question, but I'll, I'll just read it now anyway, because I love it. But the beginning of the Telltale Heart, you know how we were saying that sometimes these kind of horror stories work best as short stories? Because you couldn't sustain something like this over the length of a novel because it's so unhinged and you know that it's not going to end well, but you get this, and everybody knows the story, and um, how fantastically Poe wrote and how unhinged he could make his narrator's sound, when you just get a story that simply begins, true, nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous I had been and am. Why? will you say i am mad they did sharpen my senses not destroyed not dulled them all was the sense of hearing acute i heard all things in heaven and in earth i heard many things in hell how then am i mad hearken and observe how healthily how calmly i can tell you the whole story and then he goes on to say that, uh, you know, he, the murder he's about to commit is basically a kindness. And I love this idea that um, he's, he's pleading the case of like, I'm clearly not mad, for if I were mad, I would not be able to tell you in such precise detail the manner in which I horrifically murdered him. And it's just, <laughs> it's wonderful. And it's just insane. And and and. and it, it doesn't make any sense. He talks about having a disease. We don't know what the disease was and that he's heard things in heaven and in hell. Is he hearing voices? And I don't know if you've if you read the story, but um, basically he kills this, what we assume is a kindly old man because he doesn't like his eye. <laughs> wow. No, I'm, I'm not familiar with that story. He has no problem with the man, but he thinks the eye is evil. <laughs> um yeah and i miss i miss that kind of colorful writing it's not it's not fashionable at the moment people like very um kind of quite minimalistic prose uh that kind of rattles along as i say it's the kind of it's the it's the crime thriller approach that you see a lot of in mainstream bookshops now and i'm not a massive fan i have to say
1: I think that I mean I think that's the thing in, in in general amongst literature, isn't it, that people just want things to be a lot shorter now. I mean I, mean, I saw a, a sort of viral post on I think it was on Twitter recently where where someone was asking for you know for fantasy for fantasy books that were um, that were short, you know, within a few a couple of hundred pages, um, and it's just interesting to see how in general people <laughs> have to write shorter things to um, to to engage people. Mm.
0: I think it people's attention spans. I think people have a lot less attention
1: span, don't they? They now. Yeah. I mean people are being conditioned by things like we talked about before by things like TikTok and social media. Instant entertainment within, you know, fifteen seconds and what have you. Not even that.
0: One five one to five seconds basically.
1: Yeah. So people people don't have yeah. So obviously that is I, I I was wondering whether, you know, literature would be because sometimes it just seems to be unaffected by trends. But in this instance, it does seem that things are getting shorter.
0: It's like fast.
2: Yeah, it's difficult to know, isn't it? Until 10 years time. <laughs> um, but what's interesting is that television is getting longer and longer. Everybody wants binge-worthy series. And oh, yeah. audiobooks are massive at the moment. That's where I think people listen more than they read these yeah. days. So maybe there is a market for longer books, but ones that people can 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 listen to, I don't know. I would just briefly say that it's worth remembering that, you know, Dracula did not sell brilliantly in Bram Stoker's lifetime. It was was, um, outsold by a rival horror novel, not that they would have called it that, you know, uh, at the time, which now nobody can remember the name of, certainly not me. And so if we're talking about writing and writers, like don't worry about what's fashionable or what's trending because chances are by the time you finish writing your thousand word novel or your, thousand word novel. Say your ten thousand word novel um or whatever you're working on, the trend will have will have gone. Uh, it will be over. So just write, you know, write what's authentically you. Unless you want you're in it to make money, in which case, you know, book the trend. Probably not make any money anyway. Yeah. So well, we, yeah.
1: <laughs> we we talked earlier about this idea of making something that's on the surface very normal and turning it into something quite unsettling and terrifying and joe was talking about um using maki in the circle the spiral uh thing how how important do you think Mm, that is in mm. terms of that central topic of making a story frightening of of, of using something quite normal and, and turning on its head
2: i think it's essential uh and sort of going back to what we were talking about um at the very beginning, you know, scary clowns, you can't rely on the fact that everybody will find something scary. So you, even you take something like, a, I don't know, what a werewolf, like, oh, the, you know, there's this monster and it's coming to kill you. Look at its scary teeth. And, uh, well, you know, that's, and that can be done. Like the transformation scene in American World in London is fantastic. Uh, what's, what pays off much more is to say, you know, this, Uh, This antique hairbrush that we found uh, in that shop on the corner that closed down just after we bought it is is haunted by the ghost of this woman who was murdered by Jack the Ripper, or you know what I mean. Like you can take an inanimate object and and can it's scary. I think you almost have more success that way. And that's a silly example, but um, you know I've 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 gone on about Stoker, and one thing that I think a lot of people forget about Dracula these days is that it was published in, I think, 1897. Um, And it's kind of become kind of stuck in our minds as this kind of period piece, this Victorian, uh, you know, um, which it is. But Dracula's all about technology, and it all just seems old-fashioned now. But what it was written at a time, you know, during the, the height of empire, and you know and victoria's still on the throne and and it's in london and they've they've, you know there's so much technology and innovation blood transfusions and medicine and science and then jonathan harker goes to sort of deepest darkest um transylvania and encounters this thing from medieval folklore you know this, this 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 revenant this this archaic concept that should not exist in this age of enlightenment and and Dracula starts as this kind of typical ghost story, like you know, your your um, he's not a scholar as such, but you know this, this this learned young man goes off into the scary woods and to the scary castle and meets the monster. But then what Stoker does is brings that archaic monster into what was modern London. And for me, the scariest bits of Dracula, and I, I read I reread some of them just this afternoon in preparation for this. And it still scares me. And it's not the stuff in Dracula's castle. The, 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 and I love that. Don't get me wrong. I love anything gothic and castles. and, uh, But it's the bits where Lucy, and you know, we know as the reader that she's been bitten and she's beginning to transform. But the characters around her just think she's ill or what's wrong with her. And they're sending for the doctor. And it's so horrible that idea of those worlds colliding like modernity and science and reason versus like you know something in the darkness that we can't understand uh and i you know put aside your preconceptions of the dracula story and just go and reread those bits where where lucy is changing and, and, and you know the pinpricks on her neck and the loss of blood and how and then suddenly she seems better, but then they go into her room and she's sort of cadaverous. It's, it's actually horrible to see this happening to a person. And again, it's all written, you know, it's kind of epistolary uh, or epistolary as people say these days. And it's made me doubt my, my own pronunciation, uh, but you know, you've got, you've got Mina's perspective and you get the, you know, the doctor's diary. And then, yeah, I'm, I'm going down a, a Dracula uh, tangent, but um it's that yeah so in answer to your question it's essential to make to, to p- not just make the everyday scary but to to pervert the everyday and to twist it and to make anything to, nowhere seems safe you know and that that I suppose that's a Dracula thing like you know yeah. even in even in the light even in the age of reason like you're not safe from the things in the dark and I think that's wonderful
1: uh, and is that something you've tried to do within your own writing would you say
2: yeah um i think rule number one uh i think because the last thing i wrote was kind of a folk horror um and i've sort of described it as a as a fairy tale on, on occasion which might give it the uh it might give people the wrong impression uh but it's not a traditional horror by any stretch of the imagination but what i did and i've, I've been coy about this. it's been the book's been out for a while now but i've been coy about this in, in interviews and things because i didn't want to spoil something that happens a third of the way in um but I kind of root it as kind of very very much historical fiction and I try it's about witchcraft but any any quote-unquote magic in there is somebody performs an incantation or a spell and then the next day something has happened you know there are you don't see it happening in real time you think well could it be coincidence and and I, I kind of wanted to lure people into this sense of like okay it's it's going to be one of those you know historically accurate uh fictions that that go there and then hopefully i wrong foot people um when i go there <laughs> um but before that uh prior to the filed which i co-wrote convent Crescent with, with Zoe swan and that was very much um ag- again like the, the rule number one was character and emotion because it it always is we have to create believable characters uh, that people will care about enough to there have to be two things the characters have to have a reason to go into the scary house that is believable and not just a a plot thing but they all we also have to care enough about them that we don't want them to go into the scary house but we know that they will and that was a case of us sitting down and writing everything that had scared us as children and half that time it was an odd thing you know like that completely ordinary street but there's one house where all the windows are boarded up. Now the house is probably just for sale. There's nobody but as a child, you think, why are there? And sometimes, you know, there would be newspaper pages taped to the windows. And you think, why are they there? Those horrible yellowing pages. What do they not want us to see? And and it's things like that. those that glimpses from childhood of things that unsettled you because you saw that one thing that, shouldn't have been where it was. And then as a writer you have to say, okay, well, what did it mean? Where can I take that? So yeah, I think that was very much always, always the starting point for any kind of um, you know, creative process. Yeah.
1: and um, we've talked about uh different mediums tonight. We talked about TV shows and, and and literature and uh graphic novels. Um do you think there's an intrinsic sort of difference to writing in each of those? Is, can 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 fear be achieved? Is is there a different way of achieving fear in each each one, or is the the fundamental concept still the same?
2: Um, that's a really good question, and I'm inclined to say that they are sort of inherently different, uh, because, and again, not strictly a, a horror director, um, but for me, probably the best horror director in terms of consistent see i mean there are great horror films but i wouldn't necessarily want to watch every film that that director had made but um david lynch whatever he's doing has this absolute sense of the uncanny and sometimes it can be something as ordinary as a reflection in a puddle that suddenly seems incredibly sinister or a cup of coffee or a fan or a horse you know or some uh, some traffic lights swaying in the night breeze. And it's just imbued with this sense of absolute dread or, you know, not always, you know, sometimes it's beauty, sometimes it's mystery and you can't put that into words. And of course that the, I mean, David Lynch is a fantastic, you know, visual artist you know he always describes what he does as moving paintings and i think it's best to think of his stuff as moving paintings rather than films and expecting any kind of you know narrative cohesion from them just accept them for what they are and you'll have a brilliant time or a horrific time if it's something like fire walk with me but um but of course there are so many inherent differences in the mediums uh you know in in different mediums and of course with film you get music as well, and that can convey so much. You know, try watching a scene from an atmospheric horror film without the score, and it loses almost everything. Um, But that's not always the case, though. You know, take the Blair Witch Project, which I've mentioned, you know, is one of the things that really scared me. That has no score. Uh, The Exorcist. Famously associated with tubular bells, but I think it only plays very briefly in one scene. It was used extensively in the trailer, which I think why people came to associate it with it and i I think it plays over the end credits but um, William Friedkin famously wanted to shoot it like a documentary as much as possible to give it this sense of realism to make the the horror elements of it just seem like they were really happening to a real person in a real house and it comes across and I find it almost unbearably terrifying Uh, and you know, to the point where a lot of the extras in it, the doctors in that film are real doctors, not the main characters, but the background priests are real priests, you know, things like that. Um, So different directors use different techniques uh, and they're all very, very specific. And none of that is really something you can convey in literature, but of course the flip side is in a book, you can really get in someone's head, and understand their motivations and I suppose that the real extreme of that you know we've already touched upon Lovecraft famously kind of his works are unfilmable there was um, recently I think it was on Amazon an adaptation of the colour out of space with Nicolas Cage and it, it wasn't all that bad as as Lovecraft adaptations go I, I kind of enjoyed it but <laughs> the thing is it's it, there is this unimaginable colour in there now, of course, the, the problem with depicting anything unimaginable is that somebody has to imagine it and then show it to us, and you we can't be made to believe it's unimaginable when we're looking at it. And I just thought, well, why didn't they make the film black and white? so yes. that You know, the characters are seeing this bizarre colour, that, of course, we don't see it, and I, so I feel like they missed a trick there. What did they well, do? Things, uh, it's just kind of... I mean, there's more to it than that, but it's just kind of odd, kind of, you know, luminous. But uh, so what do you mean, like... The- yeah uh it's more like the effect that this alien uh stuff has on the landscape you know but i don't know and it is okay it was okay but um but something like the call of cthulhu where you have this concept of this ancient city with non-euclidean geometry and these towering uh, you know cyclopean uh you, you know statues and buildings dripping with ooze and this unimaginable creature and that's you know uh my friend mark hetherington who does a lot of artwork for he did the safety pin artwork he did the artwork for filed witch and he's 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 a big lovecraft fan and you know we often joke about depictions of Cthulhu how he kind of looks like a body a bodybuilder's sort of muscular torso with wings and tentacles and to me it just seems kind of painfully literal an interpretation and in the in the story itself there's this you know somebody's tried to carve an image of this unimaginable eldritch horror and they've said it's kind of like an octopus or a bat or a and, and the idea is it's It's not any of those things. It's something so intangible that the human brain can't process it, can't comprehend it. So it's kind of reassembled it out of these fragments of primal things that it maybe knows or fears. And, you know, that, you know, in terms of the written word, you could do so much with these abstract concepts that, um, and you can't film that. And good, you know, because that's every medium works best when it's playing to the strengths of that medium. You know, David Lynch can do something twenty minutes long, forty minutes long, with no dialogue, with just moody Angelo Badalamenti score and some flickering lights, and it's the best and most unsettling thing you've ever seen because it's film, because it's a moving painting. You know.
1: So, just to sort of wrap up, um, we've 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 read various um, sections of, of stories that have been important to you in some way. Is there one you want to finish with?
2: Yeah, and it could only be one, uh, really, and that is The Exorcist by William Peter Blatty, the the novel that the, the film was based on. Again, in terms of adaptation, I think one of the reasons that adaptation was so successful was because the screenplay was written by the author of the novel and directed by somebody who took, you know took it so seriously that he said i'm not i'm not making a horror film of course it is a horror film but i suppose if you consider what horror films were like prior to that you know the more kind of campy hammer horror kind of stuff he said i'm going to treat this like it's a documentary and i think that shows how well he understood the source material because uh again it seems a weird comparison but to me the exorcist is is so similar to dracula in my head because they both and you don't think that because you still think of The Exorcist as being a comparatively modern thing, even though it was uh, the early 70s. The novel was late 60s, but at least it wasn't Victorian, you know. Uh, but they both they're, they're both novels that were, that are set when they were written and they take this medieval concept and say, but what if it was happening today? What if it was real? What if it was happening to somebody in your house? And. I think a lot of you know there there is like a whole sort of possession genre in in cinema now and it's all just borrowed from the exorcist and it's lazy and it's cut and paste and it's you know it's not scary it's not interesting it's not good and you know it's easy to forget that before there there were things like dennis wheatley to the devil a daughter that kind of thing but really this was a concept that was it was from the dark ages and And suddenly you subject it to science and logic and reason, and there is no explanation. And uh, so just for anyone who hasn't read the book or seen the film, uh, even though, and it is the, the, the scariest film ever made. It is the scariest book ever written, regardless of what people say about how, oh, you know, in a secular society, it's not very scary. It's not very scary if you don't believe in the devil. And I think, have you read the book have you seen the film because the main character is not a christian she's an atheist and that's the point it's that desperation that what if something is happening to somebody you love in this case her daughter and nobody will help them nobody the character yeah so in case you haven't seen it or read it the character chris uh she's a famous actress she's kind of an audrey hepburn type so she's got lots of money and lots of influence and as such, you know, her daughter's been ill. And so she's taken her to all the best doctors, surgeons, psychiatrists. And and nobody can figure out what's wrong with her. And this this rational, modern woman who does not believe in God eventually just becomes convinced that perhaps her daughter is in fact possessed by a demon, even though she doesn't believe that. And it's that that helplessness, that desperation. And just to give some context, this is on page... 217 of the book there is a lot of build up to get to this point where she's so desperate that uh, she finally goes to a priest and begs for help and it's <laughs> i think this is like the gravitational center of it the whole story and it i it frightens me you know it's really i find the whole thing very very upsetting and, fr- and on so many levels and i think the older i get it's it's frightening because of that sense of desperation and that she has this responsibility as a parent, but no one will help her and she can't do it herself. And then when she finally gets to this breaking point and goes to ask a priest for help, he kind of laughs and says, there's no such thing as demonic possession <laughs> because you have this woman who's an atheist, who's starting to believe that maybe there is a devil. But on the flip side, we have this priest who's just lost his mother and he's starting to believe that there might not be a God. So, uh, Father Karras says, Many educated Catholics, he said in a gentler tone, don't believe in the devil anymore, as far as possession is concerned. Since the day I joined the Jesuits, I've never met one priest who's ever in his life performed an exorcism. Not one. Oh, are you really a priest or from central casting? Chris blurted, with a sudden, bitter, disappointed sharpness. I mean, what about all those stories in the Bible about Christ driving out all those demons? Karis answered spontaneously with the heat, look, if Christ had said that those people who were supposedly possessed had schizophrenia, which I imagine they did, they would probably have crucified him three years earlier. Oh, really? Chris put a shaking hand to her sunglasses, deepening her voice in an effort at control. Well, it happens, Father Karis. That somebody very close to me is probably possessed and needs an exorcism will you do it to caris it suddenly seemed unreal key bridge motor traffic across the river the hot shop with frozen milk the hot shop with frozen milkshakes and beside him a movie star asking for an exorcism as he stared at her groping for an answer she slipped off her oversized dark sunglasses, and Karis felt a wincing shock at the redness, at the desperate pleading in those haggard eyes, and suddenly realised that the woman was serious. Father Karis, it's my daughter, she pleaded, it's my daughter. Then all the more reason, he said to her soothingly, to forget about an exorcism, and why? Chris suddenly burst out in a voice that was cracking and strident and distraught. Tell me why, God, I don't understand, Carus." took hold of her wrist in an effort to calm her in the first place he told her it could make things worse incredulous chris scrunched up her face and said worse yes worse that's right because the ritual of exorcism is dangerously suggestive it could implant the notion of possession where it didn't exist before or if it did it could tend to fortify it but and secondly caris of her before the catholic church approves an exorcism it conducts an investigation to see if it's warranted warranted and that takes time and in the meantime you're couldn't you do it yourself chris's lower lip was slightly trembling now her eyes filling up with tears look every priest has the power to exorcise but he has to have church approval and frankly it's rarely ever given so can't you even look at her well As a psychiatrist? Yes, I could, but she needs a priest. Chris cried out suddenly, her features contorted in anger and fear. I've taken her to every goddamn fucking doctor, psychiatrist in the world, and they send me to you, and now you send me back to them. But your Jesus Christ wants somebody to help me. The heart-stopping shriek bolted roar above the river, sending startled flocks of birds shooting up into the air from its grassy banks with a sound of cawing and a thousand flapping wings. Oh my god, somebody help me, Chris moaned as, sobbing convulsively, she crumpled to Karis's chest. Oh, Please, please help me. I'll leave it there. That's just horrifying, just, isn't it? it? The roar, <laughs> the desperation of it, and the helplessness, and And we talked before about, you know, sort of the uncanny and the everyday. And, you know, they're not in a crumbling crypt. As much as I love hammer horror and gothic imagery, they're not in some desolate, you know, wind-swept graveyard. They're just in a park. And there's even the bit where, you know, he's realized what she wants and he's realized that she's serious. And it says, you know, it seemed unreal key bridge motor traffic across the river the hot shop with the frozen milkshakes and he's like i'm i'm here i'm in the real world it's present day it's daylight she cannot be asking me about demonic possession as fact but she is and you know that moment you know and from her point of view bearing in mind this is you know page 217 you followed her desperate journey and she's given up and conceded i'm going to ask this priest for help and he says there's no such thing it's awful a desperation so yeah that's to yeah to me that's that's, that's terrifying oh, that's,
1: yeah yeah I, I think that sort of sums up our conversation really doesn't it that
2: totally like, yeah uh,
1: so yeah thanks so much for that chris uh for, for, for joining you. us for, for the first sort of discussion um yeah is there anything you want to leave people with other than that is there anything you want to well i suppose too.
2: yeah just go, go back to the shameless plugging uh if you like spooky stories uh check out uh, a book at breakfast mostly it's just nerdy stuff but uh, we occasionally do spooky books too and say in april we'll be doing the devil rides it out we're going to do some doctor who books as well because it's of course the 60th anniversary of doctor who this year and some spooky books in october too uh and check out safetypinpublishing.co.uk you can buy my book the filed witch uh uh, my friend zowie's excellent book chingle hall uh, set in the most haunted house in england and our co-written horror novel convent crescent which is basically everything we've just discussed with the compost that that novel grew out of so if you like this kind of thing you'll love convent crescent fantastic thanks All for right, having well, thank me you. good luck with the podcast and i'd love to come back sometime
1: yeah definitely we hope to have you again
2: yeah thank you
1: thanks again chris for that interview Uh, normally at this point in the podcast we'd be talking about books that you've sent in Um, but as we mentioned this first podcast is a bit of a prototype so we're just testing the waters so we're not doing that this week but there will be a form somewhere in the description where you can submit your book to us and we'll consider it for a future podcast thanks for watching we hope you have enjoyed the podcast if you have any ideas for future
0: topics send them in thanks